The Poor Foundation. This is the Wild Eye Podcast. Hey everybody, my name is Jerry, I'm from Wild Eye, and in this episode I had a chat with Charlie Wemmis Dunn, who is the president of the Poor Foundation, which is, let me just pull that up for you quickly here, the Preservation of At-Risk Wildlife Foundation. So I've been working with Charlie for quite some time, uh, he's coming to the Mara Camp later this year, but I thought we'd have a chat, so just a little bit about Charlie before we get going. From the website, Charlie has spent the majority of his nine-year professional career as a management consultant, working across a diverse range of industries and several countries. His work to protect wildlife and wild areas began in earnest back in 2008 while volunteering for the Great Orangutan Project in Malaysia. He has an especially strong bond with the continent of Africa where he studied, lived for a time, and spent many treasured days exploring. We're not working and traveling to visit project sites and meet partners for the foundation. Charlie can be found on the ski slopes in winter or by the beach in the summer. Hell of a nice guy, and I really enjoyed this conversation. I'm sure you will as well. Charlie, how are you? I'm very well, Jerry. How are you? I'm always good, thanks. So before we get into the nitty-gritty, you were just telling me about a meeting you had yesterday about carbon, and can, can you tell me what that was about? It sounds Absolutely. very. It sounds very in, intense. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, it's definitely something that we've been working on quite a bit with uh, partners of ours um, and other others in conservation. It's an area of deep interest, I think, to a lot of people at this stage because of um, the movement in those areas in mm-hmm. searching for a solution that is more sustainable for conservation. Yep. <clears throat> so I think that you know, there's been a lot of um, literature out there and and movement in terms of things like, and people have heard about carbon markets and carbon credits and um, how can big Mm. corporations, companies, individuals, investors get involved in that to offset losses uh, in ecosystems and landscapes and and species. Right. Um, And so along with our general work that we do as a, a private family foundation, which is ostensibly giving grants um, to uh, impactful organizations. We've been helping our partners and others that we, you know, other contacts that we have um, into understanding uh, and bringing together in many ways um, the carbon uh, credit area um, and now even further on uh, things which aren't specific to carbon, but other Mm -hmm. elements that can be used, that could be used in the future, such as biodiversity. uh, biodiversity as elements as well um, and trying to bring a lot of different stakeholders together in a room to talk about those types of things that we also started out knowing next to nothing about um, but subsequently have had a bit of a crash course on it over the sure. past uh, probably six months so it's not been the full time oh, right. we've been as a foundation it's been relatively new conversations um, but it's really starting to gain steam in both the corporate area where companies are trying to offset um, their carbon and okay. they have ESG commitments they have to hit, um, which uh, you know shareholders and, and the general public are starting to really push them on. Yeah. Um, and then our organizations that we give grants to in the conservation sector are really hoping to take advantage of that, that uh, onus um, mm-hmm. in the corporate sector. And I think it's a general move away from conservation as a reliance on individual donors or or foundation donor funding and trying to have that, but also move forward and take advantage of this new impetus to 
right, uh, right. for corporates uh, to offset their carbon. So it's a fascinating area. It's quite complicated, and we're still very much learning about it. Sure, um, but it's uh, it's it's something that we've had some great conversations around. That's brilliant. So you've mentioned the foundation. I have a lot of questions, but for the people listening, you mentioned the foundation. What is it called? What is it? And how did you get started? Nick? Absolutely. Yeah. So we are the Paw Foundation, P-A-W, and it stands for the Preservation of At-Risk Wildlife Foundation. It's um, not are, just an African thing. It, it's not just an African thing. It's predominantly an African thing okay. right now. I okay. think we started off with the concept of not stretching ourselves too thin. We don't want to sure. be, um, you know, an, an inch deep and a mile wide. Uh, we want to essentially um, have impact where we focus. And, and we know the African continent better than, uh, you know, most places um, in terms of the conservation landscape, in terms of our own travel. I studied mm -hmm. there um, for, for the better part of a year when I was in university. And so our initial focus um, is very much on uh, the African continent. We have okay. one uh, group that we that we support that's maritime, marine-based, um, mm -hmm that is more global and in the future we may end up expanding um, and taking on more global projects but right now we, we want to you know focus where we focus and sure. the genesis of our foundation was was really um you know we've always loved uh wildlife conservation um visiting wildlife areas i actually worked when i was much younger um in ecotourism in southeast asia um mm -hmm. for a time and then subsequently, as mentioned, I studied in South Africa, um, your fantastic country, um, for eight months where um, I was doing separate studies, academic studies, but um, okay. was able to travel quite a bit and, and visit uh, some of the wild areas and go on safari, of course. Um, and that essentially launched a lovelong affair, you know, a lifelong affair with with the wild, wild areas, uh, yeah. conservation. It also more importantly i think started to get us thinking about a how we could help and b mm -hmm. the deeper issues at play in these areas in terms of keeping them protected and so fast forward through a career of uh you know consulting and, and doing <laughs> things quite separately same with my 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 parents um, my yeah. family um in the business side of the house in the business side of things we wanted to give back and, and we started a private foundation um mm -hmm. uh, two years ago um mm -hmm. and um at this stage we're, we're fully private but we uh, we give grants to um organizations and um you know i would say initially we went into it not having a particularly strong idea of we knew we wanted to do wildlife conservation or something yeah. around that we wanted to be focused primarily firstly in in, in on the african continent however sure. i think we wanted to leave it open to understand the landscape and the players and get knowledge first before we really defined a very clear mission and strategy. And I think yeah. that actually was quite helpful because we were very lucky. I was very lucky when I essentially started the work on the foundation to have right. some great conversations with a lot of very, very knowledgeable people that have been in the, in the area for, for many years, many decades. And that then um, essentially got us to a point uh, where we were able to define a much more uh, discrete uh, area of focus, which is um, 
ecosystem preservation. Um, we're very much focused on ecosystems mm-hmm. um, and any projects that we support um, have to be focused uh, on communities and involving mm-hmm. local communities in the areas yeah. around wild areas, as well as have um, mostly all of the funding going towards uh, the local area communities and the mm-hmm. project rather than, sure. um, you know, anything subsidiary to that. Um, right, right. And so that was really the genesis of it. And subsequently, we've gone from, you know, a lot of different things, website creation, branding, grant yeah. making, a lot of a lot of learning and lessons learned <laughs> over the last uh, year or so. Yeah. Uh, but it's been a great uh, journey so far. Really? So, so again, how long has this been running for? We started it uh, in 2020 was when really things re- really kicked off and when I started working on this full time. Yeah. We'd, we'd had conversations prior to that uh, in, the, in the previous year and yeah. we'd, we'd started to, to, to put, this, to put the, the bare bones together, but mm-hmm. really it started in earnest when um, I essentially left my consulting uh, work that I'd been doing for quite a few years and, and, and took on um, leadership of it at full time in 2020. Um, Brilliant. Yeah. So uh, I'm just, um, we're going to go all over the place here. So you mentioned it's, it's focused on ecosystems. So from an understanding, and I'm speaking from a South African point of view now, something like rhino conservation, just if we isolate it down, a lot of people have almost, and, I'm, and I'm, I might be going far here, but they've almost lost faith in that because there are 179 different organizations. They all focus on one thing. You get to a store on a Saturday morning, there's a guy with a small brown pants and he's got a little tin and he wants money for rhino conservation. You don't know where it goes. So mm. if can you just elaborate on what do you mean by ecosystem conservation? Are you looking at everything in, for, for example, the Sabi Sands or the Medikwe? Can you give me an example of that, of what that would entail? Yeah, it's a very, it's a very interesting question and there's really two answers to it. Mm-hmm. So... Overall, ecosystem preservation, and I'll, I'll answer this first, is, in our opinion, the most critical because at this stage, the biggest issue that's happening is that land is, land is becoming scarce. Uh, it's shrinking. Sure. Um, and there's a lot of pressure. Exactly. And there's a lot of pressure on landscapes. Um, mm-hmm. And without landscapes, essentially what you have is a zoo. You don't have a wild area. Uh, and therefore, even if you protect any individual species, say a lion, uh, lions or rhinoceros, uh, rhinoceri, it really at that point just becomes a zoo. It's not uh, a wild landscape such as we know in the Serengeti Mara and the Okavango Delta. So the critical piece there is, is knowing what's coming, which is a very, the biggest issue here, which is you know, pressure on these landscapes and shrinking habitat, as well as resource pressure on them. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to make the landscapes the focal point of protection and also something that works for the communities. Um, yeah. If you protect the landscapes and you know, uh, very smart and, and very experienced individuals that we work with that ostensibly have organizations that deal maybe headline, headlining, they deal with one charismatic yeah. species. Really, they will tell you that the focus is on protecting ecosystems and landscapes because if you protect lions for example as the apex predator or if you have a landscape that it is able to support the apex predator is trickled yep. down you then are able to support uh, an entire ecosystem of species mm. um and and the same applies to rhino to rhinoceros so sure. you know 
they need space to breed. I mean, you can have rhino protected areas, but at the end of the day, they need to expand because mm. uh, rhino bulls are very territorial. And if you do a fantastic job of conserving uh, a small area of rhinos and having a ton of them, mm. um, you're going to have problems in many ways uh, down the line because... And there are some of those places that have problems now. Exactly. They need space. Like, like all animals, they need space. The bulls need space. They're territorial. Um, they spread out. They, they need uh, for uh, grazing space areas. Mm -hmm. to, their black rhinos need areas where they can go and, uh, and graze off trees and bushes. And, and, sure. and you know, it's not, you don't want them on top of each other. So even rhino um, conservation outfits that we work with, um, they, yes, uh, they have an immediate cr uh, crime uh, ne necessity to stop the crime. But yes. at the same time, they're looking at expanding ecosystems and expanding mm. space. But I do, yeah. think I do think rhinos are a unique one, like yep. pangolins and also like, not so much anymore, but also like elephants, but certainly pangolins and rhinos in that it's not just good enough at this stage to just have, oh, well, if we protect this area, we protect the lions or we protect the rhinos. With rhinos and pangolins, you also need a secondary element, uh, which mm -hmm. is an immediate law enforcement protection yes. um, to stop the killing. Um, and then you can, in tandem and parallel to that, you can also be focusing on ecosystems where you can then uh, mm. have the rhinos uh, you know, spread out and disperse. Mm. But I do think, you know, rhinos and pangolins are unique in that they do have that law enforcement element. And indeed, there's a third part of that, which is trying to tackle in long term the demand. Um, of course. But uh, in general, um, uh, you know, in general, what we think is that, and, and what I think is the most impact is, is mm. with landscapes. And you, you need space, you need to protect these lands. And essentially, at this point, it's a bit of a race against time because um, Africa has a lot of very, very, very good landscapes, still has mm. a lot of very intact uh, wild areas, but those yeah. are shrinking fast and the pressure on them is very, very uh, strong mm. right now. And, and there's yeah. a lot of areas which are corridors of connection between different wild areas that sure. are in danger of being lost, which are critical when you have any animal dis animals dispersing, wildlife dispersing, and you need those corridors. Yeah. Do, do you think the narrative is important here? Because, and, and I hear you, I mean, uh, Rhino was the first one who came up for me, but if I look, and look, I'm involved in the industry on a couple of things, and if I, if I put myself back and I look at the stories that people are telling from a conservation point of view, a lot of it gets focused on the individuals, like the individual species or something like a scar, which was in the Masamara. And I, and I'm just trying to think as I'm talking here, I can't remember or think of any one situation where a body, a person, an organization, a foundation, anything was trying to spread the message of a species and at the same time mentioning the environment. How is your narrative different? How are you going to make people believe that? Because quite honestly, and I was speaking to someone at the office today, if someone hasn't been to an ecosystem in Africa, they don't understand it. They just don't get it. So what is the narrative that you think, what that you guys are putting forward and that you think should be kind of put out there for people to start understanding this? Absolutely. I think the narrative in many ways has had quite a, 
a big, a big impact in many people's lives um, over the past two years because it's very much wrapped up in human health as well. Yep. I mean, I think yep. the element of this is with the degradation of landscapes and the loss of critical landscapes, um, not only are you losing areas that are critical for, for prevention of, of climate change because mm. um, they store carbon, um, they're also critical to human health um, mm -hmm. in that they play buffer, buffer between um, wildlife and, and human beings, um, which can obviously uh, prevent uh, very deadly and dangerous uh, interactions and spillovers, which could lead to pandemics. Yeah. Um, that's one element of it. Um, these lands are critical for climate change prevention, for human health. And then mm -hmm. I think the other element to this is, is human beings. Um, I think mm -hmm. communities uh, really benefit and from healthy landscapes. It's not mm -hmm. just the wildlife and wild species here, but I think when you when you come to Africa and you come to many areas, I think what people many much of the time take away, along with seeing great sites of wild wildlife, is is mm. the human connections that they gain yeah. and the communities yeah. and the locals who live in those areas. And they very much benefit from, not just from uh, tourism in these areas, but they also benefit from healthy ecosystems. And it's sure. a source of pride for them as well. Um, mm -hmm. And as well as being a source of pride, it, it needs in some ways to be, a, to be a source of economic benefit, not just in tourism. 100%. But so to, to do the things that they've done there in a sustainable way mm. um, for, for, for hundreds of years, uh, yep. or decades, that needs to be something that's taken into account too. I think one of the things that we're all going to have to make a bit of a bargain on over the next uh, 30 you know, years, 40 years with, this, with, this, with these goals that we have is that people need to be able to benefit from the land. And of course, yep. they can't benefit in a way that degrades it or removes critical wildlife, but they need to be able to have an ability to use it um, and see it as a benefit. Um, yeah. And so... One of the areas that we really focus on is not so much. No, 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 no. So, uh, one of the areas that we, we really you know, want to focus on uh, is on um, community areas and conservancies that um, are buffer lands in many ways or corridors mm -hmm. to the very prominent national parks yeah. and national reserves but they're critical areas for wildlife. So I think that's another area that's really important. And just, you know, you mentioned, I think, you know, it, it attracts people when you, you have a story with animals and, and they get to know the animals and that's true. And, and we don't think anything uh, less of that. I think that's, it, it's great to have people uh, sure. 100%. understand it in a way that they get very invested and involved um, in that manner. I think though that, um, you know, from our perspective, the story is you want to have generations more of those of those animals, that, you know, those wildlife and those, you know, those particular characters that you mm -hmm. might know in the Mara or in the Savvy Sands in order for there to be further generations of, of uh, scars. Um, mm. It's critical to, for the landscape to be to to be uh, protected. Um, yeah. If the Mara if, the, for example, if the Mara Triangle were to be degraded uh, or if the, the marsh area of the Mara would be degraded, Scar, uh, now he's obviously passed away, but Scar's descendants would have no space and that would be sure. the end of, of the lineage. So mm. I think that 
I know, I know it's a great to have a gateway story, but I think at the end of the day, I mm. think making the point to people that the landscape is of utmost importance to protect is, mm. is, is, is critical for us. And I think people are becoming much more savvy when it comes to conservation and understanding yeah. that a lot more now as well. Yeah. How are you getting the story out there? How are you telling the story of, 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 of the environment, of the landscape? I mean, not, not kind of, yeah, on social, on websites, whatever, but how is that story being put out there? Where are the challenges? Yeah, I mean, the challenges are going to be uh, really with getting everyone to understand what's the most effective funnel and, and areas and projects and organizations to, to, put, to put their support into. Um, and I think our challenge is in many ways to help uh, individuals who, who want to give to organizations, uh, groups, other foundations, and mm -hmm. hopefully in the future uh, or in the near future, corporates as well, yeah. funnel their, their money correctly. Because I think that the issue at the moment isn't so much that there's a lack of demand to give to these types of things, because I think there is quite, quite a bit of an impetus now, sure. positively to give yeah, 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 yeah. Um, funding to conservation. There's, we have this climate crisis that we're, we're all going through now, which is something that has driven a lot more of a need uh, or a desire for knowledge amongst a lot of people. Yeah. I think our challenge is to try and um, make sure that with this tidal wave of funding um, that, that, that may come, um, mm -hmm. that, that hopefully will come yeah. from these uh, this this new green economy that is essentially directed towards the correct organizations sure, sure. Um, and the correct types of initiatives uh, that mm. are out there. Um, well, one of the you know, one of the things that and this is I mean I must be honest since COVID I was kind of more worried about getting our business back up and running so we can get people to these places. But now a little bit, but also before, and I'm going back to when I was managing lodges and, and more involved in the kind of day-to-day -day ecological runnings of a place. There seemed to be a thing of, if there were, for, and I'm just using rhino because it's top of mind, um, and, and there were like four rhino places and they would almost, in air quotes, compete. Like, mm. who can get the most money? Who? So, I mean, it sounds to me, if I've got this right, so you guys, from a landscape or an environment point of view, you surely work with people on the ground. So you might work with, in the Mara, you might work with a community leader from the Maasai. You might work with the Rhino organization as well as Sheldrick for a bigger project. Yeah, hmm. that's correct. So we're, you know, we don't pretend to have um, eyes on the ground, our own operations. We're very much a conduit. Um, yeah. We, we travel frequently to see uh, the projects and, and, the, and the, the individuals that we support on the ground um, in Africa. But at this stage, um, our focus is, is to support existing organizations. Okay. Um, so um, we have a, it really is a, a quite a variable roster of, 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 of in terms of regions, uh, in terms sure. of Africa wide, in terms of specific parks. Um, mm -hmm. We run the gamut from, from big to small and from, from uh, a focus there in terms of uh, the different organizations that we support. Um, mm -hmm. Ostensibly, all of them, uh, really all of them, um, focus on landscapes and communities. Mm -hmm. I mean, those yeah. are the twin pillars here. As much as they, um, you know, have different regions they focus on and perhaps um, for public uh, consumption, the different uh, species that they, they have as their banner, um, yeah. at the end of the day, landscapes and communities are, are critical and community yeah. work has become much more of a, 
a focus for a lot of organizations mm. um, and a critical component of this. Yeah. The, the cool thing is, and I've seen this firsthand, and when you get to meet Dixon and the guys later in the year, the, I've had an interesting discussion, and I would very much like, um, just people listening, so Charlie's going to come to the Wild Amara camp um, more on a holiday, but I'm sure we'll, we'll have discussions. I would very much like to have another podcast recording with you, me, Sakaya, and Tenke, two of our Maasai guys, because I've had these conversations with them where they, for example, when they were growing up, so he's like mid-40s, he would have killed, I think he killed seven or eight lions in his time. That's what they did. And the challenge, he says now, and this is a conversation I had last year with him, where the challenge is still to teach the communities and these young guys, yes, traditionally, this is what you used to do. But if you kill that lion, 200 people won't come to the Mara. And to, to, try and, to try and link those things up, I think that could make for a very interesting conversation later this year. But mm. what I wanted to say is, do you know a guy called Sadhguru? He's got the Save the Soil campaign. I do not know. Interesting one. So I heard him first on Joe Rogan. I, 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 you must have seen him on Instagram. He looks like a guru from India. Big ass beard, the, the whole thing. And he was on Rogan and his campaign is Save Soil. And there's a, there's a similar vibe to me here, what he's trying to do. So he's touring through, I think it was in the US, he's going through Europe. And his premise is we as a human species need to save the soil because everything comes from there. Yeah. Nutrition, life, trees, water, the whole thing. And it's, it's just a very interesting parallel for me as you're talking. Um, I'll, I'll send you links when we're done. Um, Side Guru on Instagram and Save Soil is a campaign. It's, it's really interesting. I'm hearing a lot of similarities. And that's a pretty yeah. cool thing. It's a really yeah, cool yeah. thing to hear. He's exactly right. I mean, I think that's exactly the, the, the type of mentality that should be had. I mean, the soils of critical importance anywhere in the globe you look, uh, you know, having a healthy uh, area with, with healthy soil, healthy trees, uh, intact forests, yeah. that a lot of things uh, are essentially, you know, snowball from that or, or come from that. I mean, they flow from that. Um, yeah. you, you have from that biodiversity, which is incredibly important to, to, to keep intact the healthiness of yeah. ecosystems. You have an area that humans can benefit off of both from a health perspective um, and from a utilization perspective in sustainable ways. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and, and of course wildlife species that are very critical to, to keep uh, and not go extinct, uh, they need this, these areas too. So I agree with that. And mm -hmm. so... Uh, we very much prescribe to that, but your point about, um, we're very excited. I'm very excited, Katie, my wife and I to come to the Wildlife Mara camp and, and speak with Dixon. And, and I think that that also brings up thoughts in my mind because um, I think in many ways, as much as sometimes it gets headline news in, in uh, Tanzania and Kenya, where there are, when there is human lion conflict, sure. Um, the Maasai have actually been very good at being stewards of the land there. You know, very I think much the so. Serengeti Mara ecosystem um, has had a quite a, uh, there's bumps of course, um, but there's, there's, there's quite a seamless management of the area and the land there because of the Maasai knowing how to uh, coexist um, yeah. in that area in a way that benefits both humans and wildlife. And one of them, uh, organizations that uh, we support called uh, Kopi Lion, which is in yes. Tanzania, uh, in the Gorongoro Conservation Area. Mm -hmm. um, they're much like Lion Guardians uh, in Kenya in that yeah. they also um, have uh, local Maasai who many 
used to be lion uh, hunters, um, as yeah. all Maasai men are going into warriors, uh, going to be, become Morums, were essentially mm. um, uh, wanting to do. Sure. And now they're the best protectors of it because they, of the area because they are extremely, ex, extremely uh, uh, effective community liaisons mm. and really know the land very well and know the communities very well and have a real passion for the land. And so um, it's an area that we love and that we, you know, we have a lot of work and time that we we spend there. And, and so, yeah, it's going to be fantastic to, to, mm. to speak to Dixon and, and talk a bit about that. It's a very interesting thing. I think the one thing in today's world, we're all on social media all the time. There's something to be told for telling stories. And I mean, a million years ago, we sat around fires pointing at rocks and then we drew with a berry on a cave wall and whatever the case. We've always been storytellers. And the fascinating thing to me with people like Dixon and Tenke and even James, some of our other Maasai guys, is I always think people keep, because we've had guests coming back to the Mara ecosystem five, six, seven years in a row. Then you think, okay, cool. It's because of the wildlife or maybe it's about myself and my guides. It's about the Maasai guys and it's, it's the way in which they tell their stories in such a passionate yet subtle way that people are attracted to it. And I think the, and, and, and that's why I'm, I'm, I'm very keen to have a conversation with you and Sakaya when we're there. They get their point across in such a humble, yet passionate, yet excited, yet it, it's just this beautiful way that they tell the story of the place. And I think, I mean, that for you guys is, is probably what you need. That it kind is. of storytelling. Yes, exactly. Telling stories is what really, as you say, resonates with people. Um, it's what really... You need the story. You you need something that's going to draw people in, um, yeah. like a book, and really essentially give them the the the, the impetus to to be lifelong uh, devotees yeah. or, or supporters of this area. And it's easy for the converted who've already been on safari, who yeah. have these stories, who've spoken to Dixon and been on their you know to other areas. But it's true, as you you know, as you mentioned at the beginning of of our talk how do you appeal to people that might not know anything about conservation or Africa or other areas? Um, and I think that's true. It's, it's storytelling is probably a critical cog mm. in that. Um, and I think one of the, the tricky things that we find in other areas of Africa is that there has definitely been a bit of a loss of uh, wildness in terms of people, uh, you know, they, 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 in terms of their not, not wild people, but in terms of their knowledge of the wilderness, in terms of their living yes, among yes, yes. the wilderness, you know, with movement to cities and, and things of that nature, or with or with uh, cleavage from wild areas, or with de you know degradation of wild lands, yeah. um, you know, knowledge that their parents or grandparents had of the land and and, and all those areas and stories. Mm. Being diluted, not not everywhere, and, and luckily in in Africa less so than, for example, here and you know in our in yeah, our yeah. countries. But yeah. um, that's certainly a challenge, and it makes it harder to then rekindle um, the support amongst the local communities for the sure, area sure. Um, if they sort of don't see it as anything but an, an economic resource at this point, um, yeah. rather than an area that is. Uh, has special meaning for them and is a point of pride. And you can obviously turn the tide there. And yeah, I think there is great work and great organizations that are turning the tide there. 
Um, but it's uh, it makes it a bit more challenging, and I think it is those stories that knit that knit mm. people together. Yeah. So I mean, when when you now go out and you try and raise awareness for the foundation and for what it does, where do you find people kick back the most against supporting or getting involved? I mean, I'm not talking just corporates. I'm talking on on global scale. What is stopping people, from your point of view, and the foundation, and you think at large, for people to get involved? And, and not just financially necessarily involved in any shape or form. What do you think is the kickback? Yeah. What, where's the resistance? Yeah, I mean, I think that we've been quite fortunate to, to have, you know, mostly everyone we've spoken to, both in the industry and outside the industry, be interested and, 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 and see the need and, and want to, to get involved in some way. But I think that whether they do so or not and, and what stops them um, is certainly, I think there are a number of different factors. For example, I think risk is one. Um, yeah. I think that in many ways, when you're dealing with wild areas, um, you know, across the globe, you may be dealing with uh, areas that um, aren't necessarily in, in, in places that are um, all stable all the time, yeah. <laughs> um, or that you know might have some very difficult issues to overcome with law enforcement, um, with uh, other areas, you know, other uh, encroachment on the ground. And so I don't know whether people are that that puts off people, but it certainly is something that people sure. have in the back of their minds when they're yeah. thinking about getting involved. Um, and I think that, uh, so that's one element. Um, I think that getting people uh, knowledgeable about what's going on and in the different areas and not education. Education is another thing that needs to improve. I think mm-hmm. people know about the sort of, flagship banner areas um, around the globe uh, and in Africa, areas like the Serengeti Mara and the Okavango Delta, which are extremely important, sure. but have a lot of, uh, you know, in many ways have quite a lot of stakeholders that are doing great work there already, but some of the lesser known areas that are equally important um, yeah. don't necessarily have that support. So that's another challenge is to sort of spread people's uh, desire to give uh, or at least mm. to get involved around more to have a bigger, um, you know, a bigger impact. Um, and uh, sometimes, of course, you, you have resistance. You always, the other thing I would say is that it's a bit of a whack-a-mole sometimes with local uh, governments uh, and things yes. of that nature, where there's always a push and pull here. There's always a, there's always something, whether it's yeah. a, you know, a, a, an oil play or a mine that's going to be going in potentially or new development or some danger that could uh, have an issue or an impact on the wild area yeah. um, if, if something goes wrong um, sure. uh, or it could just basically take the land and degrade the landscape. That is, I think, for, for us the perpetual struggle is that yeah. there's always these dangers and you have to give an incentive to uh, the communities and to the governments to protect this land, yeah. to make it work for them. Otherwise, it, <laughs> you, might be, you might say, oh, well, it's a beautiful piece of land. People love to come visit. But if, if they're not seeing the benefit, they'll, they'll not sure. protect it. And I think the pandemic did have an unfortunate uh, impact there where money dried up. And now, luckily, sure. this year, we're starting to see a comeback, which is fantastic. But uh, it's still nascent. And, and also, it can have an impact, too. You know, if you build uh, rampant building of facilities and lodges, that can also have a negative impact. So there's always 
fires to put literal and figurative fires to put out uh, yeah. in these areas. So, so I mean, so, so you understand all of this. You've worked, you've worked with this. Someone here, they're sitting in their, uh, an apartment in Seattle somewhere, and they think, I want to get involved. Where does someone start? I mean, obviously, you guys are one, one kind of um, jumping board that people can get involved with and then jump into the whole game. Where do they start? If someone doesn't have necessarily finances to give, obviously, that is needed and always will be. But if someone doesn't yeah. have that, what can they do? How can, some, how can someone start making a difference, getting involved? That's a great question. And I think actually now it's, it's much better than it's been ever. So I think back in, you know, a decade, two decades ago, um, you weren't looking at much. Uh, you were maybe looking at two or three very big, very well-known yes. organizations that dealt with ostensibly every issue when it came to wildlife, yeah. um, such as the WWF, that everyone yeah. knew. Um, and they still do, they have a role to play in the conservation sector um, mm. because of their size. But at the end of the day, now there are, are a lot more very impactful local and medium uh, organizations that yeah. have become better known, that are extremely, uh, you know, good at what they do on the ground. And so there's never been more of a time to, uh, under, you know, to invest in, or, or if you don't have the money to, to follow and mm -hmm. to drive up knowledge and support for organizations, because yeah. that's the other thing we have now is that we have such a um, diffuse media environment that, um, you know, is another way of getting out there. And, you know, as much as we can always, we can all talk about the sort of ills of, um, you know, social media here, you know, at various times. I think one of the biggest things in conservation that's a huge benefit of social media has been mm -hmm. the ability to not only draw attention to threats to areas that are under threat, which before would not have been known, but mm -hmm. also to campaign, to drive involvement, to drive small local, like small mm -hmm. fundraising, uh, fundraising amounts of people, which end up being very big, such as sure. the Prince for Wildlife that happened for African parks and, and uh, you know, a lot of these different things where wildlife photographers give prints and that goes to it. So it's yes. micro, micro fundraising that ends up becoming very impactful all because of uh, the fact that we're all connected now. Yep. Um, so even if you don't have a lot of money to give, those types of things and even just driving awareness on your own social media or with friends is really important. Awareness, yeah. In terms of the right organizations to give to, um, you know, we obviously, we don't, we're a private foundation. We don't accept uh, public money, but on our website, we, I think we've done quite a, uh, a lot of due diligence on the types of organizations that we think are very impactful um, mm. organizations that do have very good, uh, you know, have great work in the field right now, landscapes okay. such as an African parks or uh, a, a new body, a new group uh, that does a similar a similar type of work called Conserve, um, and then in, in the ocean with Sea Legacy, and uh, you know, yes. they also have a lot of great projects. And, and, and we have a number on our website that we go through. And I think that, like what we do, I think a lot of foundations and, and organizations and photographers as well, like sure. themselves, have been choosing a lot of the best and organizations that are out there right now um, and uh, promoting those. And I think people. Um, you know, I think people, as much as 10 years ago, they might have only known about the WWF and had no idea where to go. I think now, mm. 
um, there has been more of a sense that, okay, while they're supporting the Mara Triangle, who works in the Mara, well, the Mara Triangle Conservancy or the Mara Predator uh, Project, mm. um, or you, Wild Eye runs uh, trips that support Panthera, um, yep. or uh, my favorite wildlife photographer, um, you know, Jerry or Marlon, they put prints into Prince for Wildlife that supports sure. African parks. So I think these are all great organizations that do great work. And, yeah. um, you know, and, and then of course, another one is Lion Recovery Funds work with the new Lion King. Oh, right. Uh, yeah, yeah. That came out uh, a few years ago and Lion Recovery Funds do fantastic. We're very good friends with Peter Lindsay and, and, and they do fantastic work. Yeah. Uh, and we support a lot of the projects that they bring to us. And so, mm. Um, I would say that, um, you know, short of me just saying, well, on our website, we have a lot of very good uh, projects. <laughs> I'd say that there's a, lot of, uh, there's a lot of great information out there and a lot of people that are putting out the right organizations out there. Mm. Um, so that's one element of it. And I think that people have a voice now with, with sure. them, you know, ability to, to, to share things and, and even just donate small amounts to, to these organizations. So I think there's a, there's a much more of an ability now than there was. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and people can feel secure there. 100%. I mean, you're a great photographer. I would highly urge people to go and check out your work. I'll add all these things in the caption. Do you think photography plays a massive role in conservation today? I do. I do. I mean, I'm a big believer in visual imagery and photography. I mean, sure, you can have some naysayers that say, look, it's, it's so diluted and, and it doesn't have that much of an impact. But I think, as you say, it goes back to stories. And I think that, 100%. you know, I'll point to one of the organizations that we support closely, Sea Legacy. Yeah. They essentially were, were founded Nicklin? by... Paul Nicklin's... Paul Nicklin, exactly. Yeah. Paul Nicklin uh, and Christina Mitamaya. I mean, they are two world-class uh, National Geographic photographers who mm. have gone into the conservation field. And the impact that they have now in the, in the ocean, um, in the global ocean, creating marine protected areas and, and putting uh, campaigns out there that, that have major impacts sure. uh, is, is, is massive. And they are known first and foremost, primarily as photographers. Mm. Um, and I think that, yeah, there is an absolute power there because of the media environment we, we're in now. So as much as there is, there are many photographers out there now, um, yeah. and everyone in many ways is a creative and a photographer. I also think that, you have huge impacts from people who share their images like Thomas Mangelson and the impact he's had in, yellow, yeah. in the Yellowstone ecosystem with protection and preservation of, of, of the wildlife there. And in mm -hmm. Africa, uh, many people. Um, sure, sure, sure. And, 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 you know, with, when you think about a, an African parks or a conserved global that we support there uh, in, in Africa that are Africa-wide, imagery that they use, uh, a lot of it is from very well-known photographers who then share their work on social media or on their websites and talk about African parks and talk mm. about uh, the success they've had in places like Zakuma and, and things of that yeah, nature. Yeah. So I do think photography and visual storytelling has a major role to tell because yeah. it just goes back to that telling stories and also telling the stories of the communities, you know, having people have dignity because their story is told and they have these mm -hmm. photographs or on the flip side in a more unfortunate way it, their plight when you know resource extraction happens is shared and the destruction yeah. is shared which is some of the things that are going on in the amazon i mean these are things that really have an impact so i'm a big believer in it mm. i think i think the one thing that a lot of photographers wildlife nature photographers sometimes 
I think they might lose a bit of hope because let's say you got Sarah, she's sitting in Australia, she wants to share her wildlife and she wants to make a difference and she can only share her images. But now she's concerned that she only has 422 followers. The thing mm-hmm. is, if we all feel that way, nothing's going to go out. And I, I believe intent matters. If her intention is good and pure and she's going to put stuff out there and write captions about why she loves it, it takes one person, one person to see something to make a difference. They might talk about it at a dinner. And that's just the way that we need to get. If we can scale that, if we can scale the messages, the passion, the stories, the images, the visuals, then we're going to start getting momentum to actually start physically making a change. But I think a lot of people are lost in these, the numbers game. Stop. Just share your story. Share your own. If you went to the Addo Elephant Park in South Africa, share your story. Yeah. If you went camping, it doesn't matter, but share your story. I think a lot of people almost, and it, it's, social media has done this. I think a lot of people from a conservation point of view, they're almost intimidated. They admire people like Nick Lim, but they're also intimidated. Well, you know, I, I can't do what he does, so I'm just going to not. And that, that, that sometimes worries me a bit, that people feel their story doesn't matter. Their conservation story doesn't matter. And that's it. We need to push this thing from, from the two followers to the two million followers. People need to put their stuff out. Yeah, they do. They need to put stuff out there. I mean, look, I, I can share a lot of frustrations with, with people that, that might have those thoughts. I mean, certainly we all have been hoodwinked in many cases with, with uh, social media and with the constant mm. ever-changing need to post different forms, even on, you know, to, on Instagram. Um, no, do because, a reel, do a video, do a yeah, post. No longer a still image is no longer, yeah, exactly. A still image is no longer even. But that's, as you say, at the end of the day, it's still... Um, if you put a place, you put a place there. You, you were in Addo. You were in Kruger. You have that place in your. You tag it as a place. You put a hashtag or whatever. That is that's going to go onto that place and be able to be viewable in that place so, as anyone else's image. It's it's got the same value. And as you say, I mean, I don't have uh, thousands of followers either. But you know, I've had conversations where I've posted an, an image and I've told the story. And it, as you say, it just takes one interested person to comment and, and respond. It, eh? And in many ways, that's a richer experience than millions of people that might not really care about it, liking it. Yeah. But if you get one person that's saying, wow, this is yep. a really interesting story, um, you know, Let I would love to learn more. more. Um, I'd love to find out more. Um, I think that makes it all the more important and impactful. And I, I think mm. that there is a power, as you mentioned, in crowd, uh, the, the yeah. power of like a, a large number of people posting images and cra- and, and, and mm. I think that the, the whole has a power that's greater yeah. than any individual. 100%. I mean, from your point of view with the work you're doing and the things you've got planned out for the next year, two years, what are, for lack of a better term, hot topics in, converse, in, in conservation right now? Right. I mean, well, just back to where we first started, I think one of the biggest topics in con- conservation is um, diversification of funding. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. I think that, you know, and I think one of the biggest topics is, of course, it's great to have donor funding and have people yeah. giving to these causes and the old model of, of, you know, fundraising and people giving to them. And then, you know, foundations like ours having grantees that we give grants to, that, of course, is is great and it's and right. it's something that's really necessary. And then equally, you know, of course, there's been a movement 
of, of you know, ecotourism and tourism having an impact on these areas, which is also a really good facet. But I think that a lot of organizations on the ground are now looking to try and build on the larger issue um, that people are aware of now, which is the loss of biodiversity, the loss yeah. of landscape, the loss of wild areas and climate and the climate crisis mm-hmm. to try and find a sustainable long-term financing uh, that yeah. is, it frees them up in many ways from the every year, the yearly worry and anxiety of having to sure. constantly raise yeah. funding and donations which is, yeah. I think, in many ways, conservation groups and organizations, absolute mm. nightmare. Yeah. It's great. They love it. They love to get donations. But I think every year, they're, of course, working in the field. They're doing their operations. They're removing snares. They're protecting elephants. They're uh, ensuring human-wildlife conflict is mitigated. But then they also have this other factor, which is having to constantly uh, raise more money every year to, to yeah. keep their operations going. And I think that creates quite a lot of anxiety for them. Sure. Um, and so they're looking to try and diversify. And, and here's where you get into things such as um, how can we leverage this concept of, uh, you know, uh, carbon offsetting or biodiversity tokens sure. or trying to give governments uh, or really, uh, you know, private investors or individual investors or yeah. big corporates uh, an incentive to uh, invest in these areas with a lot of uh, of sure. funding and money, and yeah. so that it becomes uh, a- activities can become uh, self financing, and a lot of this is 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 really uh, trying to to make these areas um, something that can be you know seen yeah. as a resource. Uh, uh, biodiversity is a resource. It may not be a traditional resource in terms of extraction, but it's something of course, that we need So I think. That's one major area that is something that we're having conversations with, you know, and helping our, our, our organizations with. Um, and I think the other big thing is, as I've already mentioned, it, it's sort of in parallel to that. I think that there's a lot of talk about trying to protect as much land as possible 100%. Um, right now, because we do have an opening uh, where we still have a lot of very good focal landscapes and ecosystems intact but they're fast disappearing both on land and in the ocean so i think that you know protecting that those landscapes and having communities brought in now and governments brought in now is really important before we lose Mm. that that's something that we're really focused with with this flow of money and with people getting invested you've got big corporates and so on i don't know the answer to this question is corruption a big issue with money going in and corruption getting involved uh, you know, it, this is very nascent. So you're absolutely right. It's a massive, massive uh, worry. Um, I think that any type of system that's designed here is going to have to be designed um, and it's going to have to go forward with mm-hmm. very, very high levels of quality control and yeah. um, <clears throat> very high levels of compliance and mm-hmm. a very clear system of regulation yeah. um, where by you have a very distinct, clear relations, relationship between investors and corporates mm. and the middle group that may well be the, uh, the sort of biodiversity token holders or the carbon hold, uh, credit sure, holders sure. 
then with landowners, conservation groups who are the land managers, not the land, yeah. the land managers, such as right, right. whatever conservation organization you want to say, say African parks, yeah. that is going to be a critical uh, relationship. And there's going to need to be a lot of transparency and visibility and clear yeah. clarity there. Um, and I think those types of systems are being designed and those types yeah. of, uh, that, that type of, um, reporting is being is being created, um, and I think it's because there is, of course, going to be worries about like, well, what if this, what, what if this money just disappears? Which sure. you know we've seen in the past sometimes that does end up happening. And so yeah, then there needs to be a clear level of mm. reporting that has yeah. to be put in place. It is a tough one. I mean, if I look back when I was I was in Madikwe when one of the last hunts happened in the park where they got a professional hunter in, they got a guy in to take out old animals. And it was all done, air quotes, it was done ethically and correctly. I have an opinion, not for now. But the problem there as well was, yes, but where's the money going? Because is it going to go to where we say it's going to go? And I I recently, again, it was a hot-ish topic, kind of 2018 somewhere. And they were playing up green safaris, photo safaris, normal tourism, ecotourism versus hunting safaris. Thoughts? Mm -hmm. What do you feel about those? Yeah, I mean, look, it's a very, very, very uh, hot button issue at the moment. Um, Especially I with think, the elephant thing in the, the, the big Tusker elephant situation. Exactly. Um, and, you know, as the foundation, um, I wouldn't say we take a view uh, in terms of hunting versus not hunting. Where we do take a, a major view here is um, I think the larger trend on in the African continent, for example, is actually for, for better or for worse, um, or for, for one side or the other, regardless of sides, it's actually away from hunting. There is less yeah. hunting that's happening on the African continent. Okay. And the, the danger for that in some ways is that there are land that was set aside as hunting concessions, hunting yes. blocks that are now vacant because the concessionaire who, who were operating there um, have vacated yeah. and so we're actually quite focused on securing a lot of what you would call ex-hunting blocks um, mm-hmm. that are no longer financially <clears throat> economically viable because they still remain wild areas as much as they were utilized for hunting mm-hmm. they are viable wild areas that are in danger of development um, and uh, they're in danger of um, yeah. non-sustainable development that would essentially prevent any, any, any possibility of restoration or yeah. preservation as a wild landscape. And so from our perspective, um, you know, securing those or, have, or supporting organizations that secure those is paramount because these are, in many ways, they are, and in a lot of areas of Africa, quite uh, rich wild areas. A hundred percent. If you're a hunter, you would then say to me, well, you know, there you go. You know, these areas are, uh, you know, hunting does have a benefit. Mm. Um, and, and I think we take quite a realist, a realist um, uh, view on this in that, you know, I think we're all going to have to make concessions going forward um, for er- not, of course, in areas like the Serengeti Mara or the yeah, Okavango sure. Delta that are UNESCO heritage sites. But in other areas that we want to preserve, multi-use is, is, gonna, is going to be important. Having said that, having said that, like anything, there are more 
legitimate and far less scrupulous and legitimate operators um, and I, I, in the hunting area. Yeah. And I think that this um, has, has sort of uh, been, a, been an issue when you talk about hunting of unsustainable species. Mm -hmm. um, sure. And um, what I mean by that is when you're hunting the big tuskers uh, or you're hunting uh, breeding age male lions that yeah. need to that, that that are going to be diversifying the pool those types of things are things that have uh quite a lot of issues wrapped up in them mm. and so as much as there is legitimate points to be made on both sides 100%. i think that there needs to be proper regulation and when you're talking about hunting animals that are at the peak of their gene uh giving um, sure, sure. or that they are the last of their kind in the African continent. Because um, I, we don't, as a foundation, we don't prescribe to that hackneyed view that like, well, like if they're not, you know, maybe they should die out because like, they no, like, like no. we have to do a job of protecting human beings have already impacted wild areas. So you can't just say, you can't no, turn that argument on its head and be like, well, if you want a wild area, let the, let these ones, no. Um, so I think from our perspective, there's a realistic factor here, which is needing to protect as much land as possible, the ecosystems. Sure. Preventing, we see as the bigger, uh, as much as like, I know hunting is a very hot button issue. From our perspective as a foundation, our bigger issue is what's coming down the pipe uh, yes. over, over the next, you know, it's, it's actually, I would say, short term, medium term now, which mm -hmm. is shrinking ecosystems, shrinking landscapes. Which is going to uh, compromise both sides of the equation. It's going to mean both sides of the equation, like tourism will suffer. If you have a hunting session, it's going to suffer. Uh, it's going to really, and these areas, they will not be able to be rehabilitated if you no. completely that, that, develop them unsustainably. And so mm. we're talking about major pressure. So you might, if you keep the Serengeti Mara uh, completely you know, protected, that's great, but all the other areas are going to close right in on it. So if you have any animals that are, uh, wildlife that are moving around the buffers, which they do, especially yeah, if you compromise that buffer zone, you've got a problem. Yeah, and, and it's a real problem with certain species too. So if you're talking something like cheetah, cheetah yeah. competes so so hard, you know, they have such a hard uh, run of it hard when life. they're competing with other carnivores, mm. um, other predators, and then hyenas, and, and even with vultures. And yeah. so they are a lot of times in the buffer areas. And so if you're losing those buffer areas for pressure and you're not, you're not taking the time to really work with communities and try and secure those areas mm. by hook or by crook um, and, and work with the communities in those areas. If you're just doing the fortress conservation model of just a yep. prime area, you're going to have problems because you're going to lose, you're going to yep. not only lose many animals that get out-competed in the center and core areas, sure. you're then also going to have incursions and increasing incursions into your fortress mm. area. So that yep. from us is what, that's what keeps me up at night. And keeps mm. our foundation overnight is using these areas. Yeah. I, I love the approach and I, I truly respect what you're saying on both sides of the equation. The problem is, and maybe it's like <laughs> maybe it's like American politics, it is so polarized. Yeah. In the past, you would have Democrats, Republicans, and there was still the, something in the middle. So there was still conversation. Now it's just like, uh, uh we don't talk to each other, or I disagree with you just by principle. I think it's gotten to a point where, from a hunting point of view, we're almost at the same place where the hunters get almost too hard ass and they're like, fuck everybody else. And yeah. the, the people on the other side who 
are conservation minded, but to the point where whatever they want is also not sustainable. There needs to be what you say. Everybody has a part to play in this. The, the people on the far left of the conservation equation and the, there, is, there has to be a conversation down the middle and both sides need to compromise. Both sides need to be sensitive to the bigger picture. Yeah. And the bigger picture is what you're talking about. It's the land. If the land goes, sorry, guys, game's up. Game's up. I think the reason why people are having this problem and there's such a division is because I think both sides think that the other side is coming with bad faith. And that's what the that's where the problem lies. I, I think a tonic to that is 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 a great conversation between both sides where mm. rationality and reason reigns. And there is a there's good faith arguments on both sides. Unfortunately, it only takes one bad faith argument where someone yeah. uses an argument that sounds good on paper, but really we know to be debunked. And then it is a bad faith way of dealing with the situation. And then people will lose trust in yeah. one side, um, you know, or the other. And, and you know, I, I think that uh, that has been the poison of, of that particular debate is that both yes. sides can't trust the intentions of the other. Um, and I think that that needs to change and people do need to have a focus on the larger goal, which is securing these landscapes. But I also do think that there are issues at play that need to be supported and, and better regulation is, is where that needs to happen, I think. <laughs> I think one of the things as well with this whole debate is people's judgment gets clouded by emotion. And the moment you come into something like this, which has to be a bigger picture, we all have to have uh, it might not be a hundred percent common vision, but like we're just going all in that direction. We can't go yeah. there and you go 180 that way. But the moment the emotions come in, especially from the people on the far left, if you will, on this debate, they get too emotional that and, and if you say to them, Madiko is an example, Madiko is so overpopulated on elephants that something needs to be done because it is affecting the entire system. And it's not sustainable in the long run. But you say to them, listen, guys, we need to maybe Coal, 10 elephants. I'm just making up numbers here. I uh, know you, you can't do that. Okay, but if we don't do that because it's a fence system, the entire system, ecosystem will crash. It's not a question yeah. of whether. It is going to happen. So the emotion getting involved, that's a very tough thing to manage. It's a really tough thing to um, manage. It's really tough. And I think that you're absolutely right. I mean, I think that the unfortunate thing people need to, to, to understand is that you we we've had many decades and many years at this point of managing these areas. I mean, as much mm. as areas are wild and there are areas that are more wild than others, certainly we all humans, we, we have management of these mm. areas for better or for worse. And so as a result, um, you know, that leads to these types of trade-offs that you say, and, yeah. and you can certainly sort some of those types of things out with things like translocations, but translocations take a lot of funding and they are also a danger at times to the, to the wildlife. They're very good when they're done properly. Um, and, and, and when organizations such as African parks do successfully translocate from one area to another to support course, yeah. both the to biodiversity, but also to alleviate pr uh, wildlife pressure yes. in many yes, ways, yes. there are too many animals uh, to say too many elephants in one park and move them to another park, that works. But as you say, there are sometimes, unfortunately, uh, in order to keep, uh, you know, to keep the ecosystem healthy, there, there are unfortunate mm. decisions that need to be made. Yeah. Um, 
but I think it, it, it's just important to, to keep in mind that at the end of the day, you know, these areas need to work for the air, the local communities. And, you know, and if they don't work for the local communities, they're not going to be viable. And so at the yeah. end of the day, that's really the name of the game here. We can't, unfortunately, we can't just sit there and, and, and sort of extol, well, you, we've got to keep those areas because they're a wonder, you know, that's of not going to unfortunately no, no. Uh, do the trick. We, 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 they are a wonder. And look, I would love nothing more. We would love nothing more than to say, look, these areas are sacrosanct forevermore because they're such a beautiful areas. But, you know, there is a certain level of that, but also there is a level of like, we need to make sure that these, these areas are seen as the values that they are to yeah. all the stakeholders and especially yeah. people who live in these areas. Yeah, we have to be pragmatic about this whole thing. I mean, especially in South Africa, not South, Southern Africa, there are reserves that are 100% fenced. East Africa, more open systems, buffer zones. Same as in India, you've got the buffer zones where the tigers, tigers move through the villages sometimes. That, but in Southern Africa, and South Africa specifically, Madikwe, Sabi Sands, all these reserves are fenced. It is, it is, I find it ludicrous that anybody can think you can put a fence in and then let them be normal. Yeah. It's not. You still have to, to, you're protecting the environment, you are serving the communities. It's a fine line, hey? It's Such a fine, a fine line. line. And we'd all love, we would love nothing more than to have every area be like the Serengeti Mara that has of very course. little fencing or the Okavango Delta and the Chobe mm. that has very little fencing yeah. um, or many places in Zambia or such wilderness that is the Luangwa that yeah. is a, an extremely intact wilderness with a river yes. that's still very free flowing. We'd all love that. And, and there are still areas like that in Africa probably has more than, than many places. But, uh, you know, that is the goal. Um, but at the same time, we also understand that not every landscape can be like that. And you know, there are, there's a need to, to, to protect all, a lot of different types of landscapes, including in places that are more populated or built up, such as uh, South Africa or Malawi. Um, mm. and, and, and so, yeah, I mean, I think that there are trade-offs that have to be taken yeah. into account. 100%. What have you guys got lined up for the rest of the year? What is the foundation up to? Yeah, so um, you know, generally our year works. That we had we have quite a busy period at the end of each year. So the end okay. of 2021, we were doing a lot of our grant making to organisations. Um, this year, uh, we started off actually in February. We already had done some travel, um, mm -hmm. which was fantastic. We were out in East nice Africa. to get back out there. Hey? Yes, it was very oh. nice to get out back, back out there in East Africa. We we went to see a see a, a grantee of ours uh, in East Africa in uh, in Tanzania. Um, which was fantastic. And we are, we're going back twice over the course of the next uh, six months, um, okay. you know, twice uh, in the dry season. Uh, once, once, of course, we're combining with coming to, 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 to the Mara camp uh, and we'll also be going and seeing uh, uh, an organization that we support down in Amboseli when we're there, as well as like going that. to Malawi um, mm -hmm. to, to actually see a big translocation of elephants, uh, oh, which would be fantastic. Um, and then, um, you know, later on in the year in September, uh, we're going to be going back more of a Southern African uh, journey uh, yeah. down again to see uh, a number of organizations that we support, including um, a, an organization that's relatively new on the scene, as I mentioned, Conserve, that yeah. started to do some really uh, great things with conserving um, uh, concessions and conservancies and land. Um, so we're going to be going down to seeing them amongst other great initiatives that we have that Brilliant. work with 
pangolins and rhinos, ostensibly as part of landscape preservation. Um, but yeah, that's that's the travel. And then uh, on top of that, we'll be going and um, continuing to spread the word and work with partners and work with uh, fellow foundations to try and continue to sort of push forward with this impetus yeah. that we have around the globe of understanding how we all are connected. And, you know, in order to prevent the next COVID-19, we'd like to continue mm. to drive and, and, you know, continue to drive forward with uh, protection. And, and I think, you know, there's a lot of great conversations that are having, but it's just the next step is to try and yeah. coalesce action and get the right people all talking to each other and in the right room and also get people involved and more knowledgeable and and now that we're all sort of moving around a bit more and able to sort of go about our yeah yeah, yeah. it's a little bit more thankfully uh you know at least for the moment i'm hopeful it will be be for the whole year i hear um, you yeah you're right um, <laughs> i think, uh you know that's also something that we're going to be looking forward to seeing seeing yeah. more people getting out there because you know can't take anything for granted at this point no so you're saying see more people People listening, people who are going to find this podcast, where can they get hold of you? Where can they find more information on the foundation? What can they do? Absolutely. So they can get hold of, of me and, and find more about the foundation primarily from our website, um, poorfdn.org. Um, and, uh, you know, our social media, we have an Instagram account um, that we post to. Uh, as well and we also have decided to put things up on our YouTube but primarily everything flows from our website and you can find links to all of those things from our website and in terms of doing more um, I think that uh, of course I'm sure a lot of people that listen to the Wild Eye podcast are planning trips to get back out uh, on safari of course that's something that's really impactful I mean with COVID with the drying up of international travel that was a big problem for a lot of organizations because it has been something that's been a big positive in that yeah. travel has started to work more hand in hand with conservation organizations and funding from that yeah, yeah, yeah. go to conservation so people can go and travel they can do trips uh, they can get to the get to go on safari and and travel more mindfully to areas that really need it um that are wild areas where there are locals that work in those positions um, as uh, ecotourism guides, as rangers, as trackers, yeah. but then now more so in many ways as, as biologists or as, as people who are the, the head of conservation organizations. Mm. It all benefits them for people traveling now. And with COVID and have, hopefully yeah. winding down, they can, that can be something that really mm. helps. And start having conversations with those people. What I'll do is on yeah. the, in the caption to this podcast, I will add the, the website. So people listening can click straight through from wherever you're listening, Spotify, iTunes, you can go straight through to the, to the website. And then I'm very keen. We touched on one or two topics here, which I think deserves its own platform. Um, I'd also like to get some other people involved. Maybe we can have like a group discussion a couple of months from now, see where it goes. And then very keen. I'm going to bring all the equipment and stuff with to tomorrow for you, myself and Dixon. We can have a glass of wine. He doesn't drink. He can have a soda. And just to dig into some of the, kind of almost like into the psyche of someone who, for, for lack of a better term, is on the receiving end of the good work you guys are doing. I think that'd be a great conversation. That would be a fantastic conversation. Um, yeah. And I think that would be something that really would be the, the last piece in many ways to really understand the full cycle of it. It's, you know, understanding sort of what we do and where we're coming from and then mm. 
seeing the organizations that we support on our website and knowing what their mentality yeah. is from visiting their websites and seeing their work. But then speaking to people who are on the ground, like Tixit, who see every day what's the, be- the benefits of, of the work that's actually, the money that's actually flowing into those 100%. projects. And I'd love to talk to Dixon more about the projects that are going on there, like the, like, like what's going on in the Mara Triangle, the Mara Predator mm-hmm. project, yeah. um, how, his benef- how his community is benefiting. So that would be fantastic. That's awesome, man. Um, but listen, Charlie, thank you so much for time. We're definitely doing this again. Um, guys, if you want to get hold of Charlie, please look up the website address in the caption. Otherwise, get hold of me. Um, are you happy if I put your email address as well, or can people just find that on the website? Yeah, you can either reach out to me through the website, through a sort of get in touch, contact us page, but I'll also include my my email as well. Um, and people can absolutely reach out to me by that as well. Love that. Charlie, thanks for your time. We'll definitely do this again. And I mean, take my hat off. Brilliant work, man. Love it. Thanks, Jerry. I look forward to chatting again. Good stuff. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, cool. And there it is. Uh, if you want to get in touch, I have added the link to the Poor Foundation's website in the description of this podcast. Otherwise, go and find them on Instagram. I'm definitely going to catch up with Charlie, like we said there, when he's in the morrow with us. Him, myself, and Dixon are going to sit and have a bit of a chat. Look forward to that. Guys, as always, thank you for listening. Thank you for lending me your ears. Uh, if you want to get hold of me, Jerry, G-E-R-R-Y, at wildeye.co.za, or um, Jerry Van Velt on every single social media platform. Uh, let me know if you have any questions. I'll chat to you in the next episode. My name is Jerry. I'm from Wild Eye. Have a good one. Mm.